Hi. Hi. Welcome to the next episode of the Brio in the Box podcast. What are we talking about today? Today is going to be episode three in our mental health podcast. We're getting into psychedelics. We're going to talk about the future. Yeah. The future is the past. That's right. So to recap what we talked about in the first two, we spent episode one kind of exploring the current state of affairs. We talked about how the the major tool of psychiatry being the SSRI antidepressant medications are not really working long-term. The reality is they're just not helping people. The serotonin theory of depression really isn't it. Major developments in the research have shown that that's that's not the thing, which kind of explains why the SSRIs aren't helping people the way they were expected to, in the sense that depression is not simply a lack of serotonin in the brain. Serotonin is certainly an important part of mood and regulation and it's an important neurotransmitter. So it's not to say that it doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. It's just a a straight up simple lack of serotonin in the brain is not directly the problem. So in the second one we talked about, I think we went back and counted, there was 33 different lifestyle tools that you have at your disposal that have been shown to move the needle in a positive direction in terms of improving mental health. And it's more like a system Right. Things have to work together. So on the one hand, we had mitochondrial health, Mm -hmm. right? The little powerhouses of the cell. There has to be the proper amount of energy there in the first place in order for the cells to carry out their function, to make the neurotransmitters, to send and receive the signals of the neurotransmitters. So that's where Chris Palmer's brain energy theory of mental health disorders fits in on the mitochondrial health side and where the ketogenic diet works because it improves the mitochondria's ability to make ATP, to mm-hmm. make energy, also stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis and creation of new mitochondria that function better. So we have the like the energetic side, the powerhouse. There has to be energy there to carry out the processes in the cells. And the processes of the cells need the right substrates in order to build neurotransmitters. So that's where the quality of the diet fits in, right? You need tryptophan to make serotonin. You need vitamin B6 in order to do that conversion. So that's where the quality of the diet fit in. We also touched briefly on the role of the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And that's again, where the quality of the diet affects. There's a lot of stuff going on. That's really not well understood of the interaction between the little microbes in your gut and the effect on your brain and how the two communicate with each other all the time. So we have the the bioenergetics, the energy powerhouses of the cell. We have the processes that need the building materials to carry out their processes. And then today kind of fits in with like the sending and receiving of the signals between the cells. Right. So there can be serotonin being sent out, which is what's kind of happening with depression. It's there, but the signal is not being received. So it's like a receptor site problem. So it's kind of like you have, you're trying to receive a call on your cell phone, you know, and there's like static on the line or the calls being dropped or Mm -hmm. you can't hear what the other person is saying. Like they're trying to make the call, but the signal's not being received very well. And so this is where the psychedelics fit in. Yeah. So what the new treatment, the new thing where all of the research is headed, all of the major breakthroughs that are happening right now, the new treatments are actually old. Yeah. And like ancient old. So Mm -hmm. psychedelics have been around for thousands of years. There's all kinds of societies and histories where you can see in like ancient pottery and Mm -hmm. art and like cave drawings and stuff like that where there's like little mushrooms and there's you know shaman and ceremonies based around Mm -hmm. psilocybin or some sort of psychedelic Mm -hmm. humans figured out that there are compounds in the plant world that interact with our brain that are neuromodulators 
all the way back to, like you said, literally thousands of years old mm -hmm. practices in ancient Greece. They had the journey to Eleusis yeah. that was like 1600 BC. So we're like almost 4,000 years ago, yeah. 3,600 years ago. That was, they called them the mysteries, but there was almost certainly now there's been some really interesting research about some of the pottery and things that were used at the time, the vessels, they would make wine, but they would put other compounds into the wine. Yeah. And now through, what do they call it? Archaeochemistry. It's like they're taking little scrapings off of the pottery and doing like deep chemical analysis on what those things are. And they're finding that the compounds and plants that they were adding to the wine were psychedelics, were plant psychedelics. Yeah. So it wasn't just wine, which was originally what they kind of thought. Yeah. It was actually spiked wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think all that stuff is super interesting yeah. how far back it goes and how what people understood and had figured out even well before the chemistry existed. Mm -hmm. There's a super interesting book called The Immortality Key by a guy named Brian Marescu that's yep. all about the religion with no name. Yeah. It goes back and he explores, spent 12 years researching and visiting these sites and pulling together all this different data on how far back the use of psychedelics go in sort of human, spiritual, and religious practices, certainly there's a strong camp of people that advocate that the origins of religion were psychedelic experiences yeah. because they can have that very connected yeah. spiritual experience for people. Yeah. But that also that they were using it as sort of an annual pilgrimage in a way of like addressing their mental health basically yeah. back then, that it was like a spiritual cleansing kind of thing. And it's not even like weird, obscure religions. It's like there's a good likelihood that Christianity originally had mushrooms as part of the process and mm -hmm you know, ancient, ancient times kind of thing. When you yeah. look back at like old biblical things, there was like mushrooms, like there were sacramental and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a really interesting read if you're, if you're into that kind of Yeah, it's history. a long one. We listened to it on audiobook. Yeah. Road trip one time. So yeah. that's an interesting one. If you want to explore further into the ancient history of yeah. psychedelics. Even the, like the Salem witch trials, mm -hmm. right? There's a theory now that these witches, if you will, were acting the way they were and thinking the way they were because of ergot poisoning. Mm -hmm. So ergot is a fungus that grows on grains. Mm -hmm. And because there wasn't perfectly safe storage things back then, mm -hmm. they would often be eating or making bread from contaminated, contaminated grains. And the ergot might have given them a bit of a like LSD type trip mm -hmm. and made them think they were, you know, witches or experiencing something and acting crazy yeah. right and, the, and back then you weren't allowed to act crazy like, <laughs> yeah that wouldn't do the years of the salem witch trials correlate strongly to an exceptionally damp like high rainfall years and ergot is this fungus like you said that grows on rye so yeah. there's a strong possibility that it was ergot poisoning yeah ergot is lysergic acid which is similar to lsd yeah so people were tripping <laughs> essentially on acid <laughs> from their bread so there's always there's the possibility that it has that historical significance too in sort yeah. of the Middle Ages. You don't see a lot of that bread in the grocery store. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe don't cut the mold off your bread. I don't yeah. know. Uh, maybe. So let's fast forward a little bit more towards like more modern history, yeah. like 20th century type stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think the best place to start is with a guy named Albert Hoffman, who, if you don't know who he is, he was a chemist that basically discovered LSD for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was actually on April 19th, 1943, that he had the first ever LSD trip. And he took what he thought was a tiny amount of this substance that he had discovered. It was 250 micrograms. So whenever you take most medications, they're milligrams, which is like a thousand micrograms. So he took what was supposed to be the tiniest amount, right? And ends up having a very strong reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and this poor guy 
knows nothing about psychedelics, right? And he gets on his bike to ride home and has this like ridiculous wild trip. Wild trip. Thinks he's dying. Yeah, yeah. thinks he's dying, but he's like at ease with about it all. He's like, okay, well, this is interesting. This is quite the experience. And yeah. of course he makes it through and um, basically bicycle day is now the anniversary of that day. So all of the like, you know, LSD, <laughs> the psychonauts, the people that are into LSD like to celebrate bicycle day, April 19th. Yeah. So that was 1943, and he foresaw that LSD would be like a really powerful psychiatric tool. Mm -hmm. And so he started sort of spreading around the information about this, and people started paying attention, and people started using it in different, you know, experiments and tests and stuff. And actually, the military got their hands on it as well, and they were wondering if they could use it as like a warfare, you know, mm -hmm. chemical so they were hoping it would be like a truth serum or something that they could like spread out on the field and people would go crazy and they wouldn't be able to fight because they were just so out of their mind and everything. Mm -hmm. And so they started actually experimenting on their own soldiers with, with LSD. And the results were hilarious because there's actual footage of this from like way long time ago where they're giving these soldiers, you know, LSD and they're waiting for them to go crazy. And they just start giggling and like laughing and having a great time and like want nothing to do with fighting because they're <laughs> having such a great time and they just feel love and they feel like connectedness and whatever. Yeah. And so they're like, well, this clearly isn't going to work for, <laughs> yeah. for what we were hoping. But that was actually the part of like the MK Ultra, which there there have been a lot of like documentaries and, and talk about. Yeah. Some people might be familiar with MK Ultra because the Unabomber yeah. was given LSD as a part as a participant in MK Ultra. Yeah. And so some people think, and this is like the caveat to doing psychedelics, is that if you're prone to psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar, if you have like a family history or a vulnerability of psychosis mm -hmm. that psychedelics can trigger yeah. psychosis or schizophrenia. So and we'll get into more of that later when we talk about the kind of like risks and whatever, yeah. but kind of an interesting little tidbit there. Yeah. That the Unabomber was in on those. Experiments. Yeah. So between like 1950 and 1965 was when the majority of the work was happening. Mm -hmm. So basically it was like a heyday. Of yeah. Research. There was a ton of research going on using LSD specifically in, in psychiatric treatment. And they, over the span of 15 years, they tested about 40,000 patients. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, thousands of papers were written, dozens of books were written. It was just like all of this, the research and science was going into like psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was really like the forefront of mental health treatment and they were having really good results with it. Yeah. Something I think is kind of interesting from a local perspective. So locally in Saskatchewan, a British expat named Humphrey Osmond moved to Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and the mm -hmm. Weyburn Mental Health Hospital was one of the world-leading research centers in the use of LSD in the treatment of psychiatric disorders, but particularly in the treatment of addiction, yeah, alcoholism at the time. So little old Weyburn, Saskatchewan, the Weyburn Mental Health Hospital was where the, a huge chunk of this research was being done, which I think is so neat that it was nearby. Uh, so they were giving alcoholics LSD. Yeah. And having really good success with it. They were having up to 50% of people just getting off of alcohol, which mm -hmm. when you talk about any kind of other treatment, it's like not even close to Nothing. that. So super effective with the treatment of alcoholism. They actually did a an episode on Netflix. It's called mm -hmm. How to Change Your Mind. And the episode on LSD covers more of that kind of stuff too. And again, they have actual footage yeah. of the participants in the Weyburn Mental Health Hospital yeah. working through 
doing psychedelic assisted therapy and yeah. working through. But then we get to the like the mid 1960s. Yeah. So we have kind of like from 1950 1965, the research is going great. Mm-hmm. The, you know, tons of papers, tons of participants, lots of effectiveness. Yeah. And then we kind of get to the mid 60s and the backlash starts. Yeah. So there's a guy named Timothy Leary who is a Harvard psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and he had originally it was a psilocybin trip, and it was like life changing for him. You know, it he was already a, a, a doctor of psychiatry, but he had this amazing life changing experience. And soon after tried LSD and he was like, okay, this is the future. Like we need to bring this, not even just to like the psychiatric world, but like the world Mm -hmm. in general. This is like, you know, the hippie sixties is the war in Vietnam. Yeah. There starts to be like kind of two separate fractions of society. Mm -hmm. So he started a, like encouraging everybody to try LSD Mm -hmm. But then he also started being part of experiments at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And some of them were like kind of questionable in the ethics of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So he started to get a lot of negative attention, both from the school and from the government. Mm-hmm. And eventually he was fired for what he was doing. But he kind of became this like counterculture icon and he was just very anti, anti-establishment. anti And at one point, the government said he was like public enemy number one mm-hmm. because he was basically telling people, stop listening to the government, start doing drugs. His whole <laughs> big quote was turn on, tune in and drop out, right? So it was like draft dodging and just not being part of the, the, the war establishment. Yeah. And like, you know, the, yeah. I feel like that's, if people know about Timothy Leary, that's the Timothy Leary they're familiar with. Yeah. He's got the microphone and he's preaching to the masses of the, the hippie, anti-establishment, anti-war you know, and people forget that he was a Harvard psychiatrist first. And yeah. he kind of escaped out of the ivory tower and, and brought these drugs to the mainstream for better or for worse, yeah. right? So he was kind of public enemy number one as far as some people were concerned. But then he was also the guy really pushing that like people should have access to these drugs and mm-hmm. they should have the right to explore their own consciousness. And, yeah. you know, that you could <laughs> turn on, tune in and and drop out yeah. of regular society or yeah. sort of of the fifties era of everything be, being like very rigid, rigid yeah. and you know, he was encouraging people to do lots more self-exploration. So there's, you know, varying opinions yeah. <laughs> on Timothy Leary out there. Yeah. And so through all of this, the, you know, the, obviously the media was a big part of it and the government was like, Hey, we need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And so in 1968, LSD became a schedule one drug. Mm-hmm. So real quickly, let's touch on like what scheduling of drugs means. A, a schedule one drug has zero medical value it has high harm potential so it's basically just like banned entirely yeah no known medical application and high possibility of harm yeah and then schedule two is going to be higher risk pharmaceutical type drugs that need to be heavily controlled but they're still available schedule three is relatively safe for medical use and like commonly used yeah so schedule three is like known medical application but Mm -hmm. they're still controlled substances so things you have to get through prescription yeah so (laughs) Kind of funny to consider the things that are Schedule 3. Yeah. Fentanyl, cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and then things that are Schedule 1, psilocybin, which if anyone's not clear is magic mushrooms. Yeah. People would, just so we're clear, that's the official name. LSD. Yeah. Marijuana. Cannabis until very recently and yeah. still is in many places. In yeah. the U.S. technically it's still a Schedule 1. <laughs> yeah. Federally. So basically they 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 just banned LSD. Mm-hmm. So it's it's no longer allowed to be used in, in therapy or in science. Mm-hmm. And so the research continued. They, they kind of focused more on psilocybin and some of the other psychedelics because those weren't yet scheduled. Mm-hmm. And so it was still happening. And then 
1971, a few years later, is when Nixon started the whole real serious war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of like banned all the stuff, right? Marijuana, psilocybin, mushrooms, all the drugs were now lumped in with LSD as Schedule 1, having no medical value whatsoever. And it wasn't even just that they were scheduled. The severity of the crime Mm -hmm. greatly increased. So instead of being like, ah, you might get a slap on the wrist if you have a little bit on you. It's like, you know, you could go to jail, you could lose your medical license for even possessing this stuff. They like, they really just hammered down on it. Mm-hmm. And so all of the vast majority of therapists, obviously they're not going to risk going to jail. So they basically just stopped the treatment altogether and the research as well. We could probably do a whole episode of just ranting on the fallacies of the war on drugs and all yeah. the propaganda involved and the dark ages we've been all forced to live in in the last 50 years. But the public messaging was that these drugs were super dangerous. Mm-hmm. This was public enemy number one. The war on drugs needed to happen to save people, basically. Yeah. But really, what was happening, like we said, you had this like pro-war, pro-war machine kind of one side of society, and then you had the sort of peace and love hippies and mm-hmm. pacifism and anti-war. And there's, there's a quote on the record from John Ehrlichman, which was Nixon's domestic affairs aide, and he says, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, which also <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms we could get into. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the black people with heroin and then criminalizing both of those things heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders. We could raid their homes. We could break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Yeah. That's a direct quote on the record. Yeah. So this isn't some crackpot conspiracy theory this is just actually the roots of the war on drugs were deeply racist and anti the hippies on the left the anti-anti-war basically it's basically controlling the population yeah and it was pushing their agenda and controlling the people and if you really want a deep history of the war on drugs and you want to explore that further the book there is called chasing the scream yeah by johan hari johan hari that's a great book really interesting that's a good audiobook as well. Mm-hmm. He does a good job because he reads it himself and he does a good job. There's a lot of storytelling in that book. He tells it from the perspective of different people involved yeah. in like the cartels and the street level dealers and the users and the yeah. the DEA enforcement agents and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah. He also did an episode on Joe Rogan, if you're into that type of thing. And he basically summarizes the whole book in that yeah. podcast. So if you want just a quick version of it. That's a good source as well, but super interesting and kind of alarming, all the stuff that happened and Mm -hmm. how much, how much of a population control and how like racially driven the the war on drugs really was. So, so so anyway, war on drugs. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want to go too far (laughs) down that road because rant about that for a few hours. Yeah. So So basically, basically like all drugs have been banned. Now psychedelic research is is basically non-existent or has completely gone underground where there's, there's little pockets here and there where they're still kind of doing it, but they're not talking about it. And it's certainly not available to the masses. And like the research stops in in terms of like controlled clinical trials and scientific papers being published in the literature. Yeah. So it's still happening, but it goes deeply underground and basically the research grinds to a halt. Yeah. And so soon after that, another substance came on that wasn't banned because it was a relatively new one called MDMA. and Better known as ecstasy. Yes. So Sasha Shulgin was the one who originally dis- rediscovered it. It was first created back in 1912, but they couldn't really find any use for it. So they just shelved it. It was patented, but then just kind of like yeah. shelved because they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, it was like Merck 
Merck Pharmaceuticals or something that owned the rights to it. So it sat and nothing happened with it for decades. And then in 1976, Sasha had kind of discovered it. So he was a really interesting person. He was a chemist and he first tried mescaline back in the 1950s. And that sort of piqued his interest in psychedelic compounds. He was just blown away that these crazy little chemicals could make such significant changes in your brain chemistry. Mescaline is a a psychedelic from a cactus. Yeah. So he worked for a company called Dow Chemical. And his claim to fame was that he basically invented a biodegradable pesticide and made Dow Chemical like a fortune, like really (laughs) put them on the map. And so basically they were like, you know what, whatever you want to do, We'll pay for it. You're good to go. And so he was given a very high level access to like chemical supplies and basically had a free ride to just do whatever he wanted. And so he was super interested personally in psychoactive compounds. And so he started just experimenting with these different things. And it kind of got to the point where he was doing a lot of like kind of sketchy stuff within the lab. And so at one point, Dow was like, you know what? maybe you shouldn't do this here, but like, we'll still fund whatever you want to do. And so he had this little acreage and in his, this super cobweb filled, dirty, (laughs) dusty little backyard shed, he had this amazing science lab and he basically would like come up with little chemicals and he would start by taking a teeny tiny amount to make sure it wasn't going to like make him sick or die. And then he'd take a little bit more and then a little bit more. And he'd kind of wait until he got to the point where he had figured out a threshold dose where he started to have some sort of effects. And then he would play around with dosages. Once he figured out what a, like a reasonable, safe and effective dose was, he had this group of friends that they would all try it together and they would evaluate all these different chemicals. And he came up with like hundreds of these things. So at one point he started sharing the, the MDMA with all of his friends and they were all like, okay, there's something here. Like this one has some, some potential for sure. A bunch of his friends were psychiatrists. And so they were like, I think we can incorporate this into our therapy work. Can we talk about what a crazy wild west <laughs> this was of chemists that would just yeah. cook stuff up in their lab and then just try it on mm-hmm. themselves? Yeah. And it's funny because that's what Hoffman had done years ago well, that's what with I mean. LSD. Yeah, that was like standard back then. They and, would just try things. And I remember reading Shulgin said like it was through Hoffman's discovery of how potent some of these things can be that he's like, I will start with one microgram, right? Like a fraction of a fraction of a gram and build from there because yeah. LSD was so potent that like what, what was thought to be nothing ended up being like a very strong dose. So yeah, yeah it is pretty heroic hilarious. dose sometimes heroic, those are referred yeah. to. So basically MDMA had huge talk therapy potential. So they started using it as part of their psychiatry treatment and, and started having really good success. So that became the thing that was happening in the eighties. And then it escapes the clinic. Yeah. Which, you know, generally what happens is something comes out of science and people use it medically for the first little while. And then other people are like, oh, this can be really fun too. And so people started bringing it into the nightclub scene. And that's when it became known as ecstasy. Mm -hmm. Actually, when it was first being used in psychiatry, it was called Adam. Mm -hmm. And then as it came out into the drug, into the street drug scene, party scene, they called it ecstasy because it it tends to make you feel ecstasy. And so, you know, basically as soon as anybody's having a good time, the DEA is like, wait a minute. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, no. And so the DEA started paying attention to what was going on with MDMA. Mm-hmm. And so that's when Rick Doblin comes into play. And he is an amazing person. We'll talk more about him, but 
basically he was part of the early years with psychotherapy using psychedelics. And after he tried psychedelics, he knew he was going to dedicate his life to it. He just didn't know how he wasn't a therapist or anything. Mm-hmm. He was but, in university at the time. Yeah. But then when he realized what was going on with MDMA, he's like, oh, for sure the DEA is going to try to ban this as well. Mm-hmm. And so he started a nonprofit to bring the government to the court system and try to prevent them from making MDMA a Schedule One drug. He wanted it to be a Schedule Three drug because there was such tr- tremendous medical value. And they wanted to continue to have research access to it. Exactly. They to continue to explore its potential. So he was fine. You know, they were fine with it not being like a street drug, right? Like they didn't want it to be part of the party scene, but he knew there was medical value. And so he was fighting for it to be Schedule Three. And they were actually winning the lawsuit. Like they were proving without a shadow of a doubt that... There was tons of medical value and and it should be a a schedule three, Mm -hmm. but the DEA basically just like brushed aside the whole legal system and just banned it anyways and made it a schedule one. And so he was kind of left just like nothing he could do. Yeah. So it was 1984 that he was in that battle. And then it was in 1996 after it had been scheduled that he created an organization called MAPS. So MAPS stands for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And that, to this day, is still going very strong. So they're fighting for the future of research on MDMA and other psychedelics from the political side. So that's 1986. Mm -hmm. MAPS begins. And Rick Joblin stays dedicated to the cause. He knows in his heart of hearts that these, these chemicals can and will help people. And so he basically dedicates his life to going through the proper channels to make these things available for research and then bringing them to people. So he's an amazing dude. Like if this dude doesn't win a fucking Nobel peace prize for the unbelievable amount of like grit and determination he's had throughout his career, he's in his early seventies now. So he's like, all right, I need to fight the FDA. And he's like, how do I fight the FDA? He's like, I don't know. Oh, okay. I'll go get a PhD in public policy from Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> he had done his undergrad and master's studies on psychedelics at a, a university in Florida. Mm-hmm. So he had done a bunch of research. He knew how effective this stuff was. He knew it was worth pursuing as his life's work. So he knows he needs to fight the FDA. He doesn't really know how to go through all the government channels. He's like, all right, goes and gets a PhD from Harvard in public policy. And his PhD thesis basically becomes the roadmap mm-hmm. for how to get a schedule one drug legalized or turned into a schedule three. Yeah. So this roadmap that he lays out is what everyone is following now for MDMA. It's what made cannabis move from mm-hmm. medical marijuana into legalized yep. MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, cannabis. He basically wrote the roadmap on yep. what everybody's doing. And the journey, the battles he had to fight, he would follow to the T what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then they would change the way it, it worked. Yeah. And so he'd be like, okay. All right. And it would derail him for three or five years. And yeah. then he'd be like, okay. And he would like keep fighting, keep fighting. And then he'd make a little bit of progress. And again, they'd be like, oh no, actually with this, you have to do this. And they just, they just kept like moving move, the goalposts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he just stuck with it. And the amount of ups and downs this guy has gone through in his career, it is mind-blowing. So he is a super interesting guy to listen to. Mm-hmm. He's done podcast like almost any popular podcast he's been on. He's mm-hmm. been on Rogan. He's been on Tim Ferriss. Lex he's, Friedman. Yeah, like yeah. all kinds of places. And he's just, he's got such a fascinating story that he's he's definitely worth checking out. And he's just like a happy dude. Yeah. He's not bitter after being knocked down for yeah. 50 years of his career. He just is like 
dedicated to the cause and just seems so pure of heart that he just wants to help people. Yeah. Anyway, obviously I just love. Yeah. So he's great. So while, while he is fighting to get the ability just to do the studies, Mm -hmm. right. He's kind of taking care of the government side of things. Another guy named Roland Griffiths, who is part of John Hopkins university. Mm -hmm. He's the one who's credited with sort of reviving the interest in the actual science. Mm -hmm. And so he starts fighting to do the research on the actual drugs. And it was in 2006 that the first new or modern study on psilocybin began. Mm -hmm. And it showed, like it took forever for them to get actually approved and actually able to do the study. Mm -hmm. But it showed such incredible effectiveness and safety that in 2018 that psychedelics were given breakthrough status and they were able to start actually like opening the the gates to everybody that wanted to do the research. It became much easier to get research approval. Yeah. So the first few studies, it was like super hard. three to five years of jumping through hoops and getting approval to use a, and possess a schedule one drug for research purposes. Yeah. It was like bonkers, all the red tape. And so now they get this breakthrough status, which definitely opens the door and makes it much easier to, to even conduct the research because yeah. this was the loop they would get stuck in. The FDA would go, well, there's no research to show it's safe, but they'd put so many stupid regulations in place. You couldn't do any research. And then yeah. they would keep going like, well, show us the research. Like we want to do the research, but you won't let us. Yeah. You know? It's like so an entry have, level job that requires four years of experience. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just. So you have Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University. Like that's a, that's a major medical center, major mm-hmm. center of research. He's also now in his seventies, been at this for a really long time. You have David Nutt over at Imperial College in London. Mm -hmm. And then you have the next generation that work with those two. So under Roland Griffiths, you had Matthew Johnson. So, you know, if you follow, he's been on Huberman and, you know, you may have seen him talking. He's kind of carrying the torch at Johns Hopkins. And then you have Robin Carhart-Harris, who was at Imperial College London and is continuing to conduct the research on psilocybin and the treatment of major depression. And Robin Carhart-Harris recently just moved his lab to UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. So yeah. So now there's like if you if you look it up, there's like hundreds of these studies that are currently going on, and mm-hmm. all of these studies are very like t- very time consuming and long, right? Mm-hmm. So it takes time to to prove the the science and and get kind of any movement with the government. Yeah. But basically, what the science is trying to currently do is prove to what people have known for years, and that something about this just works. Right? They work. They just work. There's, Humans have known this for. 3,600 <laughs> years, probably longer. Yeah. Science is now showing how or maybe why, yeah. but like they definitely work. Yeah. So there's a lot of these different substances and we're, we're going to kind of focus on two main ones where most of the research is happening and then we'll quickly touch on some of the other ones. But basically psilocybin is a big one right now. The good thing about psilocybin is it can kind of like ride marijuana's coattails because it's just a mushroom, right? Yeah. It comes from a mushroom which is naturally occurring in the world for whatever reason, if it grows on its own, people have an easier time dealing with it than if it's a chemical or something that was, was created Mm -hmm. in a lab. So psilocybin basically comes from magic mushrooms, right? There's tons of different species of mushrooms that have psilocybin, but psilocybin itself isn't actually what makes the things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Your body converts it to psilocin, and that's what actually makes all the effects. But for ease of use, we're just going to call it psilocybin mm-hmm. moving forward. So let's talk about, first of all, how well they work, okay? In these studies, these are all treatment-resistant patients. So they have tried three or more different types of interventions, and none of them have worked. Mm-hmm. 
some of them, they've tried 20 different medications and all, all kinds of therapy. So these are like basically the worst of the worst when it comes to dealing with major depressive issues. They had one study that was a single treatment study, okay? So it had about 75 to 79 participants per group, and there's three different groups. There was a control group that did one milligram of psilocybin, and we'll talk about how dosing works later. There was another one that did 10 milligrams, and then there was another one that did 25 milligrams. So after the third week, there was significant improvement across all of the groups, but the 25 milligram dose was way better than the one and the 10 wasn't that much better than the one. So there's a threshold. So there's basically a threshold and it has to be fairly high. So when we talk about milligrams of psilocybin, if you were to take about a gram of mushrooms, that gram of mushrooms is going to have, depending on the breed, like anywhere between five milligrams and like 15 or even 20 in some of the really strong ones. And often like, you know, a fun dose that people will take just casually is like between one and maybe two grams of of mushrooms. So you're probably getting somewhere in the range of 10 to maybe 15 or maybe 20 milligrams. It's generally estimated. It's assumed that it's 10% concentration. So if you were to take 25 milligrams, that's closer to two and a half grams of mushrooms, which is like a strong dose, but it's not a ridiculous dose. But then some of this research that was done previously are much higher. So they're looking at like 50 milligrams. What's interesting about the psilocybin research is they always use the terminology high dose psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And for many, many pharmaceutical drugs, the recreational dose is much higher than the pharmaceutical dose. But psilocybin, it's kind of the other way around. The recreational dose is, like you said, often lower. And then the clinical dose that they're giving is higher. Mm -hmm. So I always think that's interesting with this, that they they always specify high-dose psilocybin, high-dose psilocybin. So the 25-milligram group was the most effective. All of the groups had what would be considered adverse effects, and that's one of those words that scares people off, but they categorized a mild headache as an adverse effect. So, of course, just like anything, there's going to be some, like, ups and downs, right? You might get nauseous. You might get a little dizzy afterwards or whatever. But generally, every group, even the placebo group, had adverse effects. So this, this other one was a double treatment study. So they did two psilocybin treatments and it was, it was a much smaller one. This one was only 24 participants, but it really mimics what most of these studies have found. So this one was a good one to refer to. So they did two sessions, one week apart. They had 11 hours of total treatment and therapy combined between the two sessions. So it's not that you just like just do the mushrooms. It's, there's some therapy and there's some talk work with it afterwards. But out of this group, 60 to 75% had substantial positive relief. Okay. So like a significant difference, which is great, but that's kind of like a non-specific number. 2.5 times greater effectiveness than just therapy alone. So in a control group that was just therapy, there was two and a half times more effectiveness when using the drugs. Mm-hmm. And then when you compare it to other types of pharmaceutical intervention, it was four times more effective than things like SSRIs and antidepressants. Mm -hmm. So four times more effective, two doses, not a lifetime of being on a drug, Mm -hmm. right? Is two doses of this drug with some talk therapy. And the side effects, like you said, are like headache, nausea, as opposed to all of the side effects that we listed with antidepressants before, which is like 
weight gain and loss of sexual function and metabolic problems and all of, you know, increased suicidal ideation, yeah. all the things that come with a typical pharma. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, we'll talk a little bit more about like difficult trips and stuff, but most like the biggest thing that we get out of this is that a lot of the participants said this was one of the top three most profound experiences of their life. Some people rated it above the birth of their kids, you know, like it was just like a life changing experience, right? Which is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So super effective, but like what's going on in there? Like how, how the heck does this work? Yeah. So I guess we'll start getting into the neuroscience type stuff. So <laughs> we're going to try to explain it to the best as we can, but basically psilocybin is a tryptamine. Okay. So tryptamines are also things like serotonin, melatonin, right? Things that are found in your body, other drugs like LSD and DMT. Those are all tryptamines, right? You've got a little bit more science background. So like, what does that mean? Yeah. So a tryptamine is a derivative of tryptophan, right? We talked about the importance of the amino acid, the essential amino acid tryptophan. Mm-hmm. It's their various versions of this chemical based on tryptophan where the carboxyl group has been removed. Yeah. And there's like 1,500 natural varieties of tryptamines in yep. both plants and animals all throughout the kingdom of life. Yeah. So basically, psilocybin is structurally very similar to serotonin. Mm-hmm. If you have two pictures of them side by side, that you can tell like how similar they are, even if you're not a chemist. They look very similar. In fact, if you're a chemist, you'd probably be able to pick up the differences a lot easier than if you weren't. Yeah. So serotonin, like you said, is a super important part of the the human body. It's responsible for like tons of different processes all over the body. So serotonin has a ton of effects all over the body. There's basically serotonin receptors everywhere and they all do all kinds of different things, right? They can affect mood regulation. They can affect your satiety. They can affect social interactions, pleasure, libido, sleep, digestion, like all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. And we noted before that Actually, only 5% of the serotonin in your body is in your brain. Yeah. 95% of it is in your gut Mm -hmm. and signaling things in other places. Yeah. So tons of stuff, tons of processes involved. When you take an SSRI, basically what it does is it tries to regulate the serotonin in your body, right? So it won't let a lot in and then it will try to like make sure that enough is going in. But there's no real like rhyme or reason in where that serotonin is being affected, right? Mm So it can cause changes in all different sorts of things, which is why you might have a whole bunch of side effects from taking an SSRI, right? You might be nauseous or you might, you know, have weight gain or you might not be able to sleep or whatever. Psilocybin, because it mimics serotonin, has the ability to like actually connect with that receptor. And it has a very specific affinity to one specific type of receptor. It's called the serotonin 2A it's also called 5-HT2A receptor. And that one has some very specific neural changes. So instead of taking a drug and having it go, go all over the place, you can't control it. We know specifically where it's affecting things. Mm-hmm. So like neurotransmitters and receptor sites are like a lock and key. Mm-hmm. And there can be lots of keys that fit the lock. Right. If you want to think of it that way. So that's where we said there's like 1500 different types of tryptamines And some of them can fit the lock really, really, really well. So they call it like affinity. So psilocybin has a much stronger affinity for the 5-HT2A serotonin receptors than even serotonin itself. So it activates. So when it like the key goes in the lock and turns the lock, it activates these receptors and then triggers their actions on the cells stronger than even serotonin itself. So it's like a super physiological activation of serotonin receptors. Yeah. Super interesting. 
So the serotonin 2A receptor has a high concentration in the neocortex, and that includes the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And that is like a most recently evolved part of the brain. Yeah, neocortex literally means new. So it's like the layer of the brain that's most recently evolved, and it's kind of what separates human brain functioning, cognitive functioning from the rest of the animal kingdom, all of the amazing things humans are able to do. Yeah, so it's kind of responsible for like, understanding how to act in certain circumstances, right? You can differentiate between how you would act on a soccer game versus how you would act sitting in a living room, having a conversation with your grandparents, right? Like those are two very different ways to act. Speech patterns, understanding context, sensation, perception, specifically like seeing and hearing are big ones. Mm -hmm. And then it's very high in the visual cortex. And this is why psychedelics cause such crazy visual disruption is that it's really reacting with your visual cortex. Mm -hmm. There's a high concentration of those 5-HD2A receptors on your visual cortex cells. So they get super activated, which is why you have the hallucinogenic visuals. And a lot of people hear the stories of like, oh, you see like cartoon creatures running around stuff. Like, no, that's not really how it works. But generally what happens is it's just like fractals and like drifting and like breathing and everything's kind of moving and stuff. And the, the problem is often people get so distracted with those visual disruptions that they can't really do the work of thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of these, most of these studies, they'll have eye masks and headphones and they'll put you in your own head to make you go through the process and, and do the thinking and encourage the journey to go inward. Exactly. Certainly humans have used psychedelics for you know connecting with music and like nature is often a thing and the visuals are are part of the experience that some people are seeking so but we're talking about mental health and psychedelics in the psychiatric field so we're going to focus more on how this is done in the research and in the lab for mental health benefits so the serotonin 2a receptor super important in in all of those pieces especially Mm -hmm. visual cortex so they tend to express on these things called pyramidal neurons and pyramidal neurons are basically neurons that have these little dendrites and they kind of like reach out into different parts of the brain to make connections between different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is you're making these weird and new neural pathways and it can really help you connect different feelings and thoughts and synesthesia is often really common and and you actually think you might even have synesthesia to some degree, which is like a common thing where you like, you can smell colors or you can like hear, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know all the different versions of it. Synesthesia is a cross-linking of your senses. Mm-hmm. So when, and often people report this on psychedelic type trips where they're like, I, the colors have a taste yeah. or, you know, the colors have a sound or like there's this cross-linking of your five senses. And what happens is these, these new pathways, these neural pathways that are being created allow you to make changes in the way you think or the you react or you feel so you're you're basically like reconfiguring how your brain is working Mm -hmm. which is super interesting so there's no real concrete evidence on exactly why this is making an impact but a lot of the thoughts around it have to do with your default mode network Mm -hmm. okay so your default mode network it's something that's functioning in a resting state so if you're just laying down or casually walking and your brain is going daydreaming self-reflection, self-criticism, all that kind of stuff is part of the default mode network. And what happens is your brain is always trying to be conservative in the energy it's using because the brain is very energy draining, right? Mm -hmm. We, We need a ton of energy to keep our brain going. 
And so as we age, we're trying to always build pathways that are just easy, right? So we start to make these habitual pathways through our life experiences. But the problem is, is the more you experience something in the same way, the more that pathway becomes constrained. And so often our reactions or our thoughts around certain things tend to become the default, hence the name like default mode network. Mm -hmm. So if you're a fairly negative person or you've had a lot of negative experiences in your life, you tend to associate negative things more frequently and it becomes ingrained into your brain and your negative thought loops become habitual, mm-hmm. okay? Psilocybin tends to quiet that whole system. So when we're really young, the default mode network hasn't really been built yet. So our, our minds are very plastic. It's said that psilocybin tends to increase your brain plasticity. Mm-hmm. And it brings us back to this childlike state of awe and wonder where you're just curious and you're, you're willing to think about things in a different way and you can start to construct new pathways in how you're going to deal with your feelings and your thoughts and your emotions. Mm -hmm. So one or two of these treatments can have super lasting effects for up to three months long. So it's not that you just take the drugs and you're better. It's like the drugs just open up the possibility to start putting in the real work and rebuilding these neural pathways and changing the way you look at life or feel about things or, or react to certain situations. People will describe it as like a, a ski hill, you know, mm-hmm. after lots of days, the ruts form in the ski hill. And then you need the groomer to come out and it smooths the ruts. And then it, you can reform the same ruts if you want to, if you don't do the work, or you can make new ruts. Yeah. And so the psychedelics, it's like the groomer on the ski hill smooths over the ruts, gives you the opportunity to create new connections. So that term neural plasticity, people might be familiar with, I heard that tossed around the plasticity of the brain is its ability to adapt and learn and do new things. Yeah. It's kind of a push in the right direction, right? Like it'll, it'll give you the push that you need, but then there's still things that need to happen afterwards. Mm -hmm. So psilocybin seems to be about rewiring the brain, breaking apart negative thought loops, it makes it really good for dealing with depression and anxiety and other habitual problems, mm-hmm. right? So some super interesting stuff with all of that. As far as harm potential goes, like obviously there's no such thing as like a free lunch, right? Like everything has a little bit of risk to it, but the best part about psychedelics is they're generally very safe, right? They're non-addictive, first of all. In fact, most people that do these crazy trips are often like, yeah, I don't want to do that again. It's often very difficult. And Speaking of addiction, another loop breaking use of psilocybin besides the negative thought loops of depression and the anxious thought loops of anxiety, there's tons of research being done in the thought loops of addiction behavior. So Mm -hmm. alcoholism, quitting smoking, it's even being used in the treatment of anorexia nervosa, like habituated harmful behaviors, not just thought patterns, but behaviors as well. Yeah. So it's interesting that you can use a drug to treat mm-hmm. addiction to other drugs. Yeah. You know? So they're non-habit forming, they're non-addictive. As far as safety profile goes, it's basically impossible to overdose on psilocybin and even a lot of the other psychedelic drugs. There was a case where a person took, remember, LSD is dosed in micrograms. Mm-hmm. She took 55 milligrams. <laughs> so that's 550 times a normal LSD dose because she thought it was cocaine. And so she snorted it <laughs> and had a hell of a trip for yeah. sure. I'm sure. You can have a bad time. Yeah. You can have, I'm sure you can have a difficult or a crazy time. But you and, won't die. And the higher the dose, the stronger it's going to be. But this woman took 55 milligrams of LSD. And what's hilarious about this 
is she came out of it and her lifelong foot pain was gone or she had like <laughs> alleviated was, some of her pain symptoms. That was the only long-term side effect yeah. was her foot pain was gone. Yeah. So they have something in pharmaceuticals called LD50 and that's the lethal dose 50 where 50% of the population, obviously this is always done in like mice and rats, Yeah. that 50% of the people given this dose would die, the mm-hmm. lethal dose for 50% of the population. And the difference between the therapeutic dose and the lethal dose is reported in multiples. So for something like Tylenol, it's 10. Yeah. The therapeutic dose of Tylenol and the lethal dose of Tylenol are very, very, very close, which, yeah. you know, it's something we're all casual about and we just have in our medicine cabinets and maybe don't even put the lids on tight when the kids are around and the number of people that go to ERs with Tylenol overdoses is quite high. Yeah. And then you have something that people are super panicky about like LSD and we don't even know They've what the LD50 yeah. is because apparently it's 550 times the normal dose yeah. and that's not it. Like yeah. this one case study, she didn't die. <laughs> yeah. If you're eating mushrooms, you couldn't eat enough mushrooms to have any kind of death issue from it. Mm-hmm. For sure, you can have crazy effects and have a very difficult time. And people often get really like panicky or whatever on these drugs. They're not going to die. It's just they took too much. So, you know, again, you can't really die from it. There's no real long-term negative side effects at all. You might have temporary ones like nausea or something like that, but nothing major. Mm-hmm. The big thing that you touched on earlier is there is a potential for activating a psychotic break in people that have severe mental disorders, Mm -hmm. but that can come from many things that can come from marijuana that can come from a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people that have or potentially have those drugs can not do these things. It's just, you can't do them casually on your own. Mm -hmm. You need to be in a medically supervised place so that if you do have one of those episodes, somebody's there to take care of you and make sure you're not going to hurt yourself or hurt other people. Mm-hmm. So generally, if you have a history, a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar, psychedelics aren't recommended. And as part of the studies that are going right now, they won't allow those people into the, the study. That's an exclusionary criteria. Yeah. So despite what the media would tell you, yeah, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, they can't give you schizophrenia. They can't give you psychosis. No. But if you have a psychological vulnerability to those things, it can be a triggering experience. Yeah. And so often schizophrenia most commonly manifests between 18 and 25 early adulthood in response to some kind of psychological stress. These can be distressing experiences sure. for people as, as they work through something. So the drugs can do it, but so can like the traumatic loss of a loved one, mm-hmm. uh, even just the stress of university. Yeah. That's often a time when schizophrenia first manifests. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's always the cautionary exclusion if you have a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar, it's not advised. Psychedelics mm-hmm. are contraindicated. Yeah. So we've alluded around this next thing, but you've, I'm sure most people have heard about bad trips, right? Mm-hmm. Which are very much a thing. But the best way to consider those that I've heard is there's no such thing as a bad trip. There's only difficult trips, mm-hmm. right? Really, anything can be learned by, by doing one of these experiences, right? And yeah, it might be super difficult to process some of the things that are coming at you. You're going to feel some reality and often the people that are part of these studies have very difficult crazy tears and Mm -hmm. they're they're dealing with childhood trauma that they never realized was there and like super super difficult stuff but if you can use that as a tool to get past it and move forward and clean that up then that's not bad that's that's great that's sort of what therapy is is working through your difficult traumas and things from your past right like therapy is difficult yeah so one thing they always try to emphasize, they call it psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. and psychedelic psychedelic dash therapy. Like they link the two words together. This is therapy. This is just psychedelic assisted therapy. You know, yeah. This isn't 
oh, we're taking shrooms and tripping in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> and then I feel great. Now I don't have depression. You're like, yeah. no, no, you're using these things as a tool to work through the things you need to work through. And so, yes, many people will describe these as not only some of the most profound experiences of their life, but some of the most difficult yeah. too. And I think that the big thing about avoiding bad trips is safe setting and mental state, right? So if somebody's just doing it casually on their own, you have yeah. to have the right mindset that you're going to have a good time and you have to be in a, a good, safe setting. Mm -hmm. But for people that are using this as a medical tool, your mindset needs to be, I'm going to do some work here, right? Yeah. So it's not like I'm just going to have some fun with my friends. I need to go into this being ready for some difficult things to happen. Mm -hmm. The important thing is the setting, having somebody supervising you to make sure that you're reassured when you're starting to feel panicky and that you're, you're safe and you're able to go through those feelings and thoughts. So they'll keep you from running out into yeah. traffic or whatever. Or just, yeah, help you get through it and help you explore what you're feeling and just, you know, be part of the process. So in all these studies, there's always two people, mm -hmm. two scientists in the room, usually a psychiatrist and a psychologist, at yep. least two people. A yeah. Male, a male and a female. Usually they try to, yeah, male yep. and female. And yeah, they just try to make it like an a pleasant, calming sort of environment. They tend to make the music work with the timing of the drug. So it'll bring things up right in the peak and then it'll calm things down as you come out of it. And there's this whole science behind the music on yeah. the trips. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. So like we said, tons of potential for dealing with depression, minimal harm potential, generally pretty safe. It's one of the safest drugs that there is. And there's a bunch of other uses as well. Like it's not just for dealing with depression. A lot of people like it for creativity, right? Artists, musicians, Silicon Valley for a long time was like all about the microdosing. Mm -hmm. And there's never been any real concrete evidence that microdosing is anything more than a placebo effect, but... RCTs have been done on microdosing and it doesn't do anything. Yeah, so but... If you think it does anything, it's only because you think it does and something. And the placebo yeah. effect is a powerful thing, right? Yeah. And so if that's helping you, great. Yeah. It's been used very commonly in end-of-life therapy. So mm. somebody that has terminal cancer and is going to die, there's just no doubt about it. They'll have one of these, and this is often where they do the 50 milligram, like the high, high-dose ones. And it helps you become one with the universe and you're more interconnected to what the value of life was, that you're just part of something bigger and it helps you accept that you're not done. You're just kind of moving on and... Mm -hmm. A lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff going on with it. End-of-life therapy research has been happening at Johns Hopkins under Roland Griffiths. Yeah. And they found that it obviously makes people make peace with the fact that they're dying, people with terminal illnesses, but it also reduces the amount of pain medication and anxiety medication yeah. that they need. So it allows them to be more present because they're not just drugged out of their mind mm -hmm. in the final months or years of their life. So they make peace with things and then they don't have to be cranked on opiates and anxiety meds and stuff. So yep. it allows them to be more present. Yeah, I think the powerful effects that a lot of people come out is just this connectedness and even for a non-spiritual person like a new understanding of spirituality and maybe there's more to it than just going to my job day to day and mm -hmm. you know love and you know, just changing your view on the world so there, there's a ton of possibilities with these drugs and we're really just scratching the surface yeah and certainly like we said we know that they work yeah it's not super clear why or how. There's a few things that are pretty well elucidated. The, yeah. That psilocybin docks to the 5-HT2A serotonin receptors. That's pretty well understood. You know, that it's doing something to the default mode network. That's pretty well understood. Mm -hmm. But then there's other effects that, like, they don't really know exactly why. Yeah. It stimulates neurogenesis. The psilocybin stimulates neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons. So it's building new brain cells. New, fresh brain cells function better than old, kind of crusty ones, yeah. <laughs> you know, that have gotten old and crusty from who knows what. 
stress disorders, alcohol, poor diet, like take your pick, environmental toxins, things that poison your brain cells. Yeah. When neurons are too damaged, they can't recover themselves. You have to make new ones. And so it's interesting that the progression of mental disorders like to Alzheimer's and dementia usually starts with depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's like the early stages of things are your brain cells are not functioning properly. And then if they get fully damaged, that becomes Alzheimer's and big chunks of your brain yeah. start to die essentially. Yeah. Something interesting about LSD treatment with LSD cures cluster headaches. Mm-hmm. Cluster headaches are some of the most painful debilitating way worse than migraine headaches and a dose of LSD can can in some people lead to lifelong alleviation from cluster headaches. They don't have a fucking clue how that works, but they know it works. (laughs) They don't know why. I know. And there's actually a derivative of LSD that is similar, but doesn't have the hallucinogenic effects that actually works better at curing cluster headaches than LSD Mm -hmm. itself. So it's not related to the visuals. It's not the hallucinogenic properties It's something else. And they have no clue what (laughs) they took the LSD molecule and plugged it into this AI computer and said, based on this chemical structure, how many other possibilities are there of chemicals that would be similar or have potential effects? Mm-hmm. And the, the computer came up with thousands of these things. So yeah. each one of those things could have a slightly different, you know, effect mm-hmm. on the body. So it's really like, again, we're just scratching the surface on all the potential stuff that's going on. I think it's interesting, like a lot of these psychedelics come from nature. Most mm. of them come from nature. Yeah. LSD was synthesized in the lab. Albert Hoffman came up with it in the lab. And then they discovered after that that chemical that he synthesized in the lab is basically what's in ergot. Yeah. Lysergic acid. It's basically the same thing. And so it's interesting that it was originated synthetic, but it actually did mimic something from nature. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a bunch of of other ones that come from nature besides just magic mushrooms. Yeah. We'll just kind of quickly go through these other ones. There's research going on, but they're not the big ones right now. So ketamine's kind of been around for a while. Ketamine is already a schedule three drug. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called a psychedelic disassociative. Mm -hmm. So it's very safe in medical use in that nobody is allergic to it. And so if there's ever any kind of concern over allergies, they will use ketamine as an anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And that's traditionally been what it's used for. So like if somebody comes into the ER and they need to be put under anesthetic and they have no idea if they have yeah. any allergies to certain medications, ketamine's the safest one because it's the least likely to have allergic yeah. reactions. There's They're currently using it to treat depression now. And actually, even in Saskatoon, there's ketamine therapy mm-hmm. treatment places you can go to. And it's, it's pretty interesting, like really good, powerful effects as well. It's usually done through IV and then there's like talk therapy as well. But for the first three weeks, they'll usually do two infusions a week and you have like a 20 minute disassociative kind of journey that you go on and then they talk through it afterwards. And then they'll do like weekly treatments for three weeks. And then often after six weeks, that's it. You're just, you're good to go. Some people will need a bit of a booster dose here and there, but often patients just never return again after six weeks because it just fixes their depression. And there's some stories of some seriously bad depressive people that are cured through ketamine. Like it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. And that one, again, it's already being used, right? You can, you can do it locally. And that's why, because it was already a schedule three, it was much easier to conduct research with ketamine and show that it was effective. Yeah. Because you didn't have to jump through half a decade of hoops to get approval to do it in the first place. So that's where the importance of of the scheduling of these drugs really comes into play so that, that the science can proceed. Yeah. So these next ones are fairly naturally occurring ones as well. Um, Ibogaine was kind of like originally discovered from a root in Africa. It's been used very well with substance abuse treatment. So you can go down to Mexico or other places in South America to have Ibogaine therapy. Mm -hmm. This one is not a fun one. This one has very 
tremendous amounts of projectile vomiting, very uncomfortable feelings. And it like, it's a real long experience and apparently it's just brutal, but it's so good at curing addiction, especially opioid addiction, which is like one of the hardest ones to get off of. So tons of promising stuff there. Like a violent purging, people yeah. describe it. Like the trip, it can be 12 hours or longer. Yeah. Um, yeah, not fun, but it, it's just like a, a, a symbolic release of all of the stuff that people needed to let go of. And yeah, yeah super effective. There's no Ibogaine clinics in Canada or the US, but no. there are in Mexico. So yeah. that's a frequent thing that people will go down for Ibogaine treatment yeah. south of the border. And we kind of talked about this earlier. So peyote, which is a type of cactus, and then San Pedro cactus as well. Those are both mescaline containing cacti. And they've been around forever, Mm -hmm. uh, but their big thing right now is they've been adopted, like not originated by, but adopted by Aboriginals. Mm -hmm. So there's a, what's it called? The Church of... The Native American Church. Native American Church, who has been given government permission to use it as part of their ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And it's the only drug that has different legalities based on if you're part of this church or not, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a weird thing. It's not even if you're Aboriginal or not, you have to be part of this church. Yeah. So... This one has been used by them for trauma recovery, substance abuse, even just part of spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the big problem with this one is there, the concerns, because it's, it's starting to get more and more popular, there's concerns over overuse. The peyote cactus takes 10 years to mature. So to grow it is not like, ah, oh, we'll just grow it and next year we'll be good to go. It's like it takes 10 years to fully mature. And so there's concerns over it becoming more mainstream that there's not going to be enough left for everybody. Mm -hmm. The good thing is, is that you can get synthetic mescaline quite easily. There's just always the people out there that are like, no, you got to have the real mushrooms, not the Mm -hmm. chemical structure. It's like, it's the same thing. Yeah. The chemical is the chemical. It doesn't matter where you got it from. Yeah. And honestly, after all the shit that Aboriginal people have been through, if we just decide that they get to have all the peyote in the world stuff, then that's fine. I think, I think at the very least we can agree to that. The other one's ayahuasca. Yeah. People have heard maybe of like an ayahuasca trip. This one's become a whole vacation thing. Yeah. Spiritual and borderline religious, ceremonial, cultural practices in South America. Yeah. Ayahuasca is a plant that contains DMT. Mm -hmm. DMT is a naturally occurring chemical in your brain. Yeah. DMT's dimethyltryptamine. Yeah, dimethyltryptamine. There's like thousands of plants that have it. Again, DMT is found in our brain. It's a super interesting one. When you want to take DMT, it's not orally available. Yeah. I can't imagine being a tribes person back in the day that figured this out. <laughs> yeah. But there's certain plants that have an MAOI inhibitor. MAO is just another process in our brain that helps us break down certain types of hormones and stuff. Monoamine oxidase. Yeah. So if you take a plant containing DMT and mix it with a plant containing an MAOI, it all of a sudden makes it bioavailable or mm-hmm. orally available. And so you can consume it and they'll have these ceremonies with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Another one that's often very uncomfortable, often lots of throwing up, but it's really good for like substance abuse, depression, and general self-improvement. People will go on these ayahuasca retreats to make themselves a better person. Mm-hmm. So that's become quite a commercial thing, which a lot of people are angry about. Yeah. Yeah. People don't love that for sure. Yeah. And then like DMT specifically is just a drug you can take as well. People generally smoke it and this is a super short but very potent one. You'll hear people that have done it talk about just blasting off into this different realm or different universe. So it can, it can be like five to 15 minutes, but it's one of the most int- intense trips you can have. And it's common for seeing a crazy visions and interacting with different entities, learning really powerful life lessons and stuff. It's very visual, very potent mm-hmm. stuff. 
And then... But very short-lived. Super like short-lived. People will get blasted off in outer yeah. space and then they're back in like five or 10 minutes and they're like, oh my God. And like, like crazy time distortions where somebody will blast off and they'll be like, I was gone for years. And they're like, that was like 10 minutes, dude. Like, yeah. and pretty crazy one. And then a very similar one as well that's found in nature is called 5-MeO-DMT. So this one's like toad venom is where it's naturally found. Mm -hmm. Same sort of idea. It's even more potent than DMT. But this one, it's like, it's less about seeing things and it's more just like a whiteout. So people will say, you see nothing and you are just in it with your thoughts and your feelings. And it's like, again, super, uh, super potent, very common to have powerful ego death type experiences with this one, mm -hmm. but it's less of a visual one and more of just an introspective kind of thing. Yeah. Ego death is something people describe often from these psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And it's, it is from the quieting of the default mode network and your sort of sense of self gets mm -hmm. put to the side. And that's why people come away from these experiences with a much more like connectedness and people interpret that connectedness in a variety of ways. Some people take it as a very religious experience. They feel connected to a higher power. Some people feel just more connected to other humans and to, you know, humanity and animals and the earth and just sort of the universe, yeah. you know, more of a spiritual, less religious kind of perspective. Yep. Some people just come out of it less circling on their own shit, right? And just like, oh, I'm just part of it and we're all going through it. And you come out with a sense of empathy and for yourself and for other people and maybe for the people that have harmed you. And, you know, so people can interpret or get a variety of benefits out of ego death. Yeah. So... Those are all things that are like being researched and tons of potential in different areas. But the one we're going to finish on is, again, probably one of the biggest ones. So I'd say psilocybin and MDMA are the two big ones. Mm -hmm. so, so the other ones are what they call classic psychedelics. Yeah. And MDMA is not a psychedelic, but it gets it's getting lumped in. It is. With the yeah. yeah. So MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. So it's a, it is an amphetamine drug, but it's such an interesting, unique one that they came up with their own term for this drug specifically. They called it an empathogen, mm -hmm. which we'll get to later. So it's not a tryptamine like the others. This yeah. Is, it's an amphetamine. It's an amphetamine. So basically, mushrooms mimic serotonin and, and cause interactions with the, the 5-HT2A receptor. Mm -hmm. Psilocybin docks on the receptors. Yeah. MDMA stimulates the release of your serotonin along with norepinephrine, a little bit of dopamine, a little bit of oxytocin, and it'd be like inhibits the reuptake of them as well. So it, re it, it releases your body's own serotonin primarily. Mm -hmm. That serotonin will, again, affect those receptors and cause things to happen within your body. Mm -hmm. So it works similar to psilocybin. It's just different. So where psilocybin has such a high affinity for those 2A receptors that it causes like a super physiological activation, which is why you get the visuals and the visual mm -hmm. cortex and that sort of thing. MDMA does not dock to the receptors at all. It stimulates the release of your own chemicals. So yep. you you get a physiological activation with your own serotonin right. of those things. So MDMA does not have any psychedelic effects. It doesn't come with any visuals or hallucinogens or anything like psilocybin and LSD and the other classic psychedelics do. Yeah. So basically, instead of giving you the like visual kind of trip, it has some other effects. The main thing they think that it does is, is it quiets your amygdala. So the amygdala is kind of like the fear center of your brain. Mm -hmm. And often when somebody has a, a traumatizing experience, they develop a, a pathway of fear around that, that thing. Mm -hmm. And so anytime they try to 
deal with it or think about it. They're just terrified and they can't process it, right? Can't go there, can't go there, can't go there, you know? So MDMA will like decrease feelings of fear and defensiveness. And then it also increases feelings of well-being, right? Which is why it's such a commonly used drug. And that's serotonin, right? They call them your here and nows, your yep. content- contentment. Yeah. Um, it increases your social ability and extroversion. So it makes you like want to talk to people and it makes you more outgoing and stuff. That's the dopamine and norepinephrine effect. Yep. It increases interpersonal trust. Anybody that's ever like done MDMA knows you can make best friends immediately <laughs> with a perfect stranger. And that's the oxytocin. Oxytocin is your love and bonding hormone. Because it's an amphetamine, it, it increases your state of consciousness. You're much more alert, right? It's definitely like a bit of a stimulant as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the big thing is like, it just increases bonding, right? Hence the name empathogen, right? You're just like more empathetic. You're more likely to like bond with people and just feel a connectedness mm-hmm. amongst other people. And so all of these things make it the perfect drug for talk therapy, right? For, mm-hmm. for psychotherapy. So a lot of the people that are using this drug will basically say they can do five years worth of therapy in their three sessions that they have with their, their person, you know, cause mm-hmm. so much of psychotherapy is just building trust and trying to get them to open up. And that can take a whole year they and can do that immediately with the drug. Deconditioning the fear response of, For sure. of addressing the roots of your traumas. And, and, and so they take these drugs and all those walls come crumbling down and they're just w- way more willing to actually talk and put in the work. So where psilocybin, the psychedelic therapy sessions are often like eye shades and earphones on and there's very little actual talking happening during the session. Yeah. And in which case it works, like we said, for internally exploring your own loops, whether it's you know, depression, anxiety, and the roots of those things or addictive behaviors or like, you know, harmful behaviors. MDMA, most of the research is done in PTSD. Yeah. So talk therapy. So the sessions are you're awake, you're alert, you're talking with your therapist the whole time. And it's helping you process your trauma by quiet putting you in it. They call it the love drug, right? So it puts you in a, in a content state of like warm fuzzies and love reduces the fear, makes you feel safe. And it allows you to go to those places that you need to, to like process and, and deal with them and let them go. Um, like you said, just in a greatly accelerated fashion, what would take five or 10 years of therapy yeah. can be done in three sessions. And it's like extremely effective. And honestly, like I can attest to this personally, because when I was dealing with the loss of my brother, I used MDMA to help with that process, you know, and it, it made a significant difference. And it's one of those things that just like, it makes magic happen you know it's incredible the effects here's some of the studies that they're doing right now it is like bananas the numbers they're coming so this is the most recent phase three study that maps has done 88 percent of participants and by the way these are all again the the worst of the worst these are the most treatment resistant highest level of pt ptsd people so like really really difficult situations they have tried everything else yes everything else so they have 88% of participants with severe treatment-resistant PTSD experience a clinically significant reduction in PTSD diagnostic scores two months after their third session. So they do three sessions, one month apart. It's usually about an eight-hour session where they, they do the trip and then talk a whole bunch afterwards. And then there's therapy sessions that aren't on MDMA as well. It's usually about 12 sessions altogether that they do. They call it reintegration. Yeah. So three sessions, one month apart. And then with that same thing with the placebo group, 60% of participants had improvements, right? Which is still significant. So it really goes to show that it's not just the drug, like the therapy is great, but going from 60% to 88, like that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But here's where the real kicker is. 67% of participants in the MDMA group 
no longer met the criteria for PTSD two months after the sessions, which means they were basically cured, right? They were no longer in the PTSD group. 67%. The placebo group was only 32% of people. So more than twice as effective of curing this like horrible, horrible condition. So a few takeaways from that. A, the therapy that MAPS does alone is is decently effective Mm -hmm. in that, like you said, these are treatment resistant people that have tried everything else and nothing worked. So therapy alone they can get 32% of people to no longer meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. People are always hesitant about using the word cure, right? But you're like, they can't diagnose them with PTSD anymore. But even more remarkable is they can get two thirds of the treatment resistant PTSD people. These are Mm -hmm. people that are suffering and have tried everything else and are borderline suicidal because they can't tolerate living like this anymore. They can get two thirds of them to no longer meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. It is bonkers. Yeah. And this, like, like you said, this is the worst of the worst, right? So if it's working for them, like how effective is it going to be for the general population? I'll call them the people that are like dealing with some trauma and stuff, but it's not like severe. Mm -hmm. So pretty impressive. They're hoping that by sometime in 2024, it'll be scheduled as a, as a schedule three drug. Mm -hmm. They're really close. They've done all of the, like, they've gone through all the hurdles and jumps and They've done all the studies and stuff. They're, they're still looking for funding to kind of get things further pushed along, but they're really hoping that sometime in 2024 it'll be. Yeah, they were kind of aiming for end of 2023, hoping for early 2024. So this is Rick Doblin, head of MAPS. Yeah. MAPS has funded all of this research independently. So MAPS is a nonprofit organization and they have fundraised through like donations and philanthropy 100% of this research. Yeah. The government, so like the NIH in the U.S., has not helped one single cent in bringing these very, very effective treatments to market for people. They've had to, they made them do all of this privately. And so Mm -hmm. luckily there are uh, major philanthropic supporters of this cause. And often how this happens is like a personal conversion experience. Like people, wealthy, you know, millionaires, billionaires, whatever, have themselves or someone in their family that is suffering from, PTSD or treatment resistant depression and the the typical things aren't helping. And they're like, I have all this money, but I can't bring my, my son back or my Mm -hmm. daughter back or whatever. And they're like, what else is out there? And they find these treatments and they find these researchers and they go, why the fuck aren't we funding this? (laughs) And they put their, their personal money behind the cause. Right. So it, it's unfortunate that it takes people being affected by these things personally for them to take up the cause and, and push push this forward so that everybody can benefit from it. Yeah. The difficult thing about all these studies is they're very expensive and generally they're paid for by like pharma. Yeah. Right. But MDMA can't be owned by anybody. It's way it's off patent, way off patent. And so there's no money to be made. And yeah. so none. And then again, one of the like most profitable drugs in the world are antidepressants. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to cure these things with three doses of a drug versus have somebody take a drug for the rest of their life, of course the pharmaceutical companies are going to push for the ones you take forever and cost yeah. a lot of money. So it's it's definitely a difficult place to be in, but that's why Rick Doblin's so amazing is he's like fought the fight and mm-hmm. he's winning, you know, it's, it's yeah. going well. So MAPS will have, um, what do they call it, exclusive use yeah. of the way that they synthesize MDMA for like controlled psychiatric therapy for I think it was five years is it just five I thought it was longer it doesn't matter but they'll have some exclusive use so that they can try to recoup some of the millions and millions and millions of dollars of cost so they've gone through phase one trials phase two trials phase three trials showing increase like the effectiveness and safety yeah these are multi-center trials that have happened all over the world so they've had to coordinate researchers and 
all over the U.S. A lot of the research has been done in Canada. Yeah. We tend to be a little bit more liberal towards these things in Canada, Israel, like all over the world. So just an incredible amount of work that they've done to try to bring this to the world for basically no personal benefit. Just yeah. because Rick Joplin just believes in this to the just a good dude. He's just a good dude. So let's talk a little bit about like the safety of MDMA because that's one that like has been in the media before. So first of all, MDMA doesn't work if you're already on SSRIs, right? SSRIs are regulating the amount of serotonin in your system. And and so if you take a drug that releases a surge of it, those SSRIs just won't let it happen. It just doesn't work. And so often it's problematic because somebody is on an SSRI and they take some MDMA and it doesn't do anything for them. And so they take more and then they take more and then you just end up getting all the negative effects and none of the positive ones. Yeah. So in the trials, they, they get people to go off the SSRIs as part of this. Yeah. Um, Exclusionary criteria is you can't yeah. be on an antidepressant. Other than that, it's generally quite safe as long as you're doing proper dosages. So MDMA is one of the drugs where the street amount that's taken is often much higher than the medical one. Usually MAPS will use 100 to 120 milligrams, and then they'll often do a second dose within the session of half. Whereas some people on the streets are taking like two or three or, or more, 100 milligrams. So at smart doses, it's quite safe. Safe enough to the point where as part of the MAPS training, they'll have the therapist take it. Not as part of therapy, just as part of experiencing the drug and getting to understand what their patient is going to be feeling and how to better deal with it. Like, Yeah, so to be clear, the therapist is not on drugs no, with the patient, no, not no, at the same separate. time. But to become a maps associated therapists that will participate in the trials they have to do mdma themselves so it's safe enough that they're even willing to have the doctors and the professionals Mm -hmm. take it because it's not like they make your psychiatrist take zoloft before you can take zoloft like that's not a thing yeah there is some potential for overdose there's no concrete like ld50 for sure because there's cases of people taking 10 to 20 times the normal amount over the course of a night taking like two grams of this stuff and not really dying or having any real bad problems. And then there's other cases of people taking smaller amounts and having super adverse effects. So there is some potential there, but in medicine, most of the bad experiences come from revisiting trauma, not from the drug itself. It's just the fact that they are going through a very difficult process. And that's generally what what makes things negative. Otherwise it's almost all positive. And then as far as street use goes, the most common problems are mixing with other drugs, specifically ones that you don't even know you're taking. Mm-hmm. You might be taking a pill that you think is MDMA and there's actually meth or who knows what else in there. Or mixing it with the world's most harmful drug, yeah. which is alcohol. Alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Alcohol and MDMA together are very bad. Not a great mix. You can like completely black out and have no idea what happened all night long. And it's, mm-hmm. it just greatly increases the dangers of both drugs. But then the other two big things are overheating and then hyperhydration, not dehydration, but hyperhydration. So what will happen is people will go to a music festival and they'll be in the hot sun, 35 degrees Coachella, and they're just dancing all day long Mm -hmm. and they overheat. And that's where the major problem is. Mm -hmm. And then often people get really thirsty on MDMA and think they need to drink way more than they do. And they'll hyperhydrate themselves to the point where they'll start to have negative consequences. So again, if you're in a medical setting or you're aware of the problems, mm-hmm. p- potential risks, you can make it very manageable, yeah. way less risky than a lot of other the substances. difference between a rave and the clinic is very big. Very different, yeah. I, like, we talk openly to Atlas about what all these drugs are, what they do, what the effects are, the safety profiles, and we'll do the same with Dash when he gets to be that age. Yeah. 
And the point we always try to emphasize is that these drugs, even though these drugs are quite safe, all drugs that you get from an unknown source are dangerous because they're illegal, yeah. because they came from the black market, because you don't know who cooked up what in their bathtub. Like yeah. you don't know what's in them unless you've had them tested and verified. So yeah. assume that all drugs are contaminated with fentanyl until proven otherwise. Yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about kind of like summarizing all of this, but basically like all of the information we were given in the dare days is about ecstasy is like completely false it's scare tactics it's bad science and they did it strictly to shock people because mdma came out when the like drug war was going strong mm -hmm. and it started to gain popularity and they needed some way to scare people into not doing it yeah so let's talk about some of those things because they're hilarious yeah so oprah had an episode that you specifically remember watching where they brought this person on and had a scan done of their brain and said they had these gigantic holes in their brain from doing mdma one time I fully remember watching this episode of Oprah with my mom and yeah, they, they showed on the screen, the scans of the brain, these big dark spots. Yeah. And this can happen if you go to a part, if you go to a rave even one time and like, what a fucking joke because yeah. any decent scientist, you don't even have to be a neuroscientist to go, if you had holes like that in your brain, you're dead. You're dead. Yeah. <laughs> This is crazy. And in all of the MAP studies, because they're doing more research on this than anybody, they've had no evidence of any holes in the brain, right? No. So it's, there's no holes in the brain. You would be dead. That's ridiculous. Absurd. And that's just, that is the definition of propaganda. Yeah. Like, it was absolutely scare tactics and, and it worked for some people. You nonsense, non-science, intended to induce fear, intended to change behavior. It was like the ultimate propaganda. Another thing that they used as part of their research was like ridiculous doses of the drug. So this was a rat study. When you, when you take MDMA, most people take around 100 milligrams or so is, is what you're supposed to take, which works out to be about one to maybe 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of your body weight, right? They were giving these rats 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram of their body weight. So like 10 times the normal dose, 20 times the normal dose. And they were doing it twice daily for four days in a row. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you were to take any drug at that dose twice daily for four days in a row, you're going to have a real bad time. Yeah. You're probably going to have some problems. So ridiculously high dosaging well beyond the normal amount that people should take. Normally when people take MDMA, it's recommended not to take it more than every three months. Mm -hmm. uh, MAPS will do it once a month for three months in a row just to kind of keep the time frame closer together and make it more effective. But then they also do that expecting that you're not going to continue to do MDMA, mm -hmm. especially monthly. So generally the rule of the non-scientific rule of thumb is no more than once every three months. And that's because MDMA stimulates the release of your own neurotransmitters. So it, you dump your serotonin and your, your brain needs time to replenish those neurotransmitters. And so that's why you can't, it doesn't even work to take MDMA like multiple days in mm -hmm. a row. It loses its effectiveness because you're just, you're out of your stores. Of yeah. Neurotransmitters. And you, it's not even just that you're releasing the serotonin. It's like, if your brain is chronically at a high level of serotonin, it'll be like, okay, we don't need this much anymore. We need to downregulate the receptors. And so the receptors will start to like stop being affected by the MDMA. Lose their sensitivity. And, yeah, and then you just basically, like you can take the drug and nothing happens. Yeah. And then here's the best one. So they did a study, this one was on monkeys. The goal was to show how neurotoxic MDMA was. And it did prove how neurotoxic a drug was, but it was not MDMA. Turns out they were accidentally, maybe, 
using meth instead of <laughs> MDMA. So they said they did this big study saying MDMA causes like severe neurotoxicity, but then it came out afterwards that they were actually using methamphetamine, which yeah. does. Meth, not good for you. We, yeah. we know that. We acknowledge meth does indeed cause neurotoxicity, but that is not MDMA. Those are two very different things. And the problem was, was that the study came out and everybody heard about it, but then they later redacted the information because it was false but nobody heard about that. All yeah. they heard was that damage was caused by MDMA and it puts holes in your brains and whatever. And it's like, no, like meth, yes, meth mm -hmm. does. MDMA does not when used yeah. safely. So. And like primate research is difficult to do. It's not done that often. And there's a lot of suspicion out there. They're like, how the fuck do you mix up yeah. meth, amphetamine, and MDMA? And the researchers were like, oh, we grabbed the wrong vial <laughs> off the shelf. And they're like, either... This is the world's worst lab. <laughs> yeah. In which case, why were you granted the ability to do primate research? Or this was maybe designed on purpose to, mm -hmm. to show some harm, like artificially show harm of MDMA. Yeah. When they, to get any harm, they had to give these poor monkeys meth. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of like, mm, lot this of is either science. the shoddiest science ever done or it was done on purpose yeah. like that. And who knows? No one will ever answer that. But yeah. But now moving forward, all the safety and effectiveness of these drugs is very promising. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's just like being smart about it. Mm -hmm. So MDMA is primarily being used for PTSD therapy right now. That's the main area of research. But there are other alternative things that it's also being experimented with. One of them that's really interesting is they're giving MDMA to the, the spouse or the family member of the person with PTSD and then having a therapy session with a therapist as well. So not only does the therapist help the person, the patient, but you can have more open communication between the loved ones mm -hmm. so they can understand each other more and freely talk through things. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of potential for that, but then also just like couples therapy in general because it really does break down your walls and allows you to understand the person more and be more open to communication. And so there's a ton of potential for couples therapy. Rick Doblin's like goal, his long-term goal that he doesn't know if it'll happen or not, but he would love it to be that you could get yourself a license to be able to buy over-the-counter MDMA, proven that you're using it safely and you understand the you know risks and be able to use it as part of your relationship. And just, you don't even need a therapist there. It's just you and your spouse working on your relationship and trying to make a positive impact on it. So mm -hmm. pretty interesting. There's some research going into using it for eating disorders and anxiety disorders and a few other areas. So lots of potential in this one as well. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that's kind of interesting that ties this back to the war on drugs being a huge, gigantic mistake. And yeah. it's we've really suffered under like 50 years of the dark ages as a result of the war on drugs and untold millions of people have suffered from lots of different angles, right? So. Yeah. You know, the good guys, the law enforcement, they were forced to enforce these ridiculous laws and a lot of them were harmed and suffered mm -hmm. in the process. A lot of the people with treatment resistant PTSD are from the military. So as much as we go back to the 60s and there was the pro-war machine side and the anti-war left, the people that are suffering the PTSD are now the ones participating in these trials using these drugs to heal their trauma from being part of the war machine, you know? Yeah. So it's really coming full circle. There's a police chief from a police department in the U.S. that's gone through the MAPS training to be a psychedelic therapist. So it's interesting to have the head of a police department is now a psychedelic therapist. Mm -hmm. So formerly a person that would have been arresting anybody for possessing these drugs is now yeah. a, a very strong advocate of, of using them and letting them help 
his people, letting them help the police officers that have PTSD from all of the crazy shit that they see in the, the line of their work, right? Yeah. So as much as it was like very divided in the 60s, things are coming back around. So we're coming out of the dark ages. This yeah. is like the renaissance of psychedelic therapy and, and we're moving forward. And I think we can all like lay down our swords, yeah. acknowledge that there are uses, these things are safe, they're effective, yeah. and that people need them. There is a strong need for these things to help people and withholding them from the public has done nothing but harm. I think you can't just blanket statement, drugs are bad because there are so many different types of drugs. There is a spectrum of drugs out there, right? Mm -hmm. Caffeine is a drug, alcohol is a drug. There's all these drugs that people are using and then they'll like shun anybody who even talks about using other drugs, even if it's for medical usage, right? Yeah. I thought it was really interesting when marijuana was legalized, right? For the first little while, everybody was kind of like tiptoeing around the subject, right? And then slowly somebody would be like, oh yeah, I like smoked some weed last night or oh yeah, last night I had an edible. And now it's become more of a like mm -hmm. common thing that people talk about. Like, what are you doing? So, yeah, I'm going to get some weed or something like that. And it's, it's funny because you'll be like, how was your night last night? Be like, oh man, I got hammered last night. Yeah. But if you were to say, oh man, I, I did MDMA last night. You're like, what? <gasps> it's like shocking. And yeah. it's like, we need, like you said, we need to lay down our swords. We need to acknowledge that there are perfectly good uses for these drugs. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are safer than the ones we're using sometimes on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So we can't just lump them all together. What's funny is some of the most harmful drugs out there are the prescription drugs. Yeah. Some of the most dangerous drugs are benzos, opioids, and you can get those from a doctor, yeah. you know? So when you have a perfectly safe chemical like LSD, but you're completely against anybody using it, even if it's for like helping them deal with their mental issues, like that's a problem. Yeah. So I think it's weird that people have, and this is what needs to get broken down. And this was, if this is in your brain, this is the result of dare <laughs> conditioning propaganda for probably when you were a kid, Yeah. that there's drugs and alcohol. That's like saying fruit and apples, yeah. like alcohol is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Anyone that drinks, you do drugs. Yeah. Alcohol's changes your brain. It just happens to be a drug that you ingest like by drinking it as opposed to, you know, snorting it or smoking it or swallowing it or any other way of getting it into you. Yeah. But alcohol is a drug and alcohol is the worst. It's one of the it's most harmful, most social harm, most addiction potential. Yeah. And of all the things we decided that was the one that's going to be legal. Yeah. And we learned back in the 1920s that prohibition doesn't work. Yeah. Prohibition puts the distribution of these things into the hands of the black market. It increases crime. It decreases safety for the user. It increases concentration because of like the problems with shipping, you yeah. know, and you, moving it around illegally. And it only took 10 years of alcohol prohibition for everyone to go, well, this is stupid. Yeah. But for some reason we've been dealing with 50 years of drug prohibition without going, well, this is stupid. Yeah. You know? I think that the most dangerous drug is the one that you don't know you're taking. Yeah. So when somebody relies on street drugs, they might be buying one thing, but getting something else. Fortunately, we're kind of coming around where there are like testing sites available now and you can like figure out what's actually in your drugs before you take them. Mm -hmm. But the main problem with the overdose problem is that people are taking what they think is a little bit of heroin and it's actually a teeny bit of heroin with a little bit of fentanyl in there. And mm -hmm. it's enough fentanyl to like overdose. So yeah. We need to, you know, I'm not saying we need to like completely legalize all drugs, but it's ridiculous to put somebody in prison for doing something that somebody else is just having cocktails on a patio. You know, it's like, those are just different drugs, but mm -hmm. you're both consuming a, sub a psychoactive substance. Yeah. We allow a 19 year old to go into the liquor store and buy enough alcohol to kill themselves. Yeah. And 
you know, we, for some reason as a society are okay with that. Yeah. It's, it's just bonkers. So I think we all need to just relax and acknowledge that there's some use to, to these substances and, Mm -hmm. and we need to go about finding the right way to make use of them safely and just stop being judgy and, and acknowledge that like people are just going to do drugs. Even if you don't want them to, people are going to do drugs. It's like sex education being abstinence only. It's like, sorry, but that's not going to work. People are still going to have sex. So we need to find the safest way to make these drugs available so that we're not tying up our medical system with people overdosing. We're not tying up the prison system with people that were just trying to get high or have a good time or whatever. And then we need to free up the the permission that people can use these for medical value because mm-hmm. there's tons of medical value in a lot of these substances. So the best harm reduction is better education. Yeah. And so if you were completely unaware of any of these things, or even if you're only peripherally unaware and you're like, I would like to be a more open-minded, educated person on this topic, here's some of the recommendations we would make. Uh, Michael Pollan, the esteemed writer, he wrote books like The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food, great writer. He wrote a book a few, quite a few years ago now called How to Change Your Mind. Mm -hmm. And he was really a big part of, you know, he's like a 60-year-old professor in Berkeley, California, you know, whatever, not a raver wrote a book about psychedelics and he was kind of the first one where people went, Oh, like if somebody in an esteemed position like Michael Pollan can be open to these things, maybe, maybe I could be open-minded too. And it wasn't just about the topic. It was about him doing them, him experimenting with them and seeing what they were like. And then they made, there's a a four part documentary on Netflix called how to change your mind. And they did an exploration of, of each of the major psychedelics. So there's one on LSD is the first one. Yeah. It was MDMA. I think ayahuasca and and masculine. Yeah, is one of them. So yeah, that one's super interesting. The book is quite long. It's a good audio book. Yeah. The Netflix documentary is excellent. Yeah. Uh, like we talked about the history, the ancient history of psychedelics is The Immortality Key uh, by Brian Murarescu. And he was also on Rogan if you just prefer to listen to conversations. Mm-hmm. Johan Hari, super interesting dude. He wrote uh, the book Chasing the Scream. And that's all about the history of the war on drugs. And he also wrote another one on depression. It's really, yeah. really, really well done. Super good. And a great listen. And he's been on several podcasts too, if you just prefer listening. Yeah. Rick Doblin. He's anything. Anything Rick does. <laughs> love that dude. Yeah. Maps.org is the organization where you can see all the research, their publications. He's been on lots of different podcasts if yeah. you just want to listen to him talk. Huberman Lab has done a fair number of things about psychedelics. And Andrew Huberman is a professor of neurobiology at Stanford School of Medicine. And he was saying in one of his recent episodes that he's like, things are changing. He's like, five years ago, I would not have been able to talk about doing psychedelics for fear of losing my job Mm -hmm. as a professor at Stanford. And he's like, this month, like May, he's like Stanford Magazine, the entire magazine, the entire issue is about psychedelics. Yeah. So things have rapidly changed and where progress is moving forward, even at the kind of uptight institutional level. Yeah. Fantastic Fungi. It's a documentary on Netflix. It's not specifically about magic mushrooms, although they do touch on it at the end. It's just sort of about what a neat type of plant material they are and how different it is from any other life form on earth. Yeah. Really beautiful. The imagery of it is really, really well yeah, done. Yeah, they did a great job with that one. There's a, a neat guy in there called Paul Stamets featured who's just like this amazing mushroom expert and yeah. just like really passionate about knowing all about different types of mushrooms. And that one's worth a watch just because it's a super cool movie and yeah. just learning about the mycelium and how mushrooms work in the forest. It's just amazing. Yeah, but right. then they do touch on psychedelic mushrooms yeah. a little bit as well. So yeah, there's tons and like there's more and more documentaries coming out all the time on the effects of psychedelics mm-hmm. and you know, the potential. So there's plenty of information out there. I think we all just need to like, you know, be willing to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. 
there's a documentary we just watched recently on YouTube called Magic Medicine that's mm. all about Robin Carhart Harris's study and it shows the participants and has them discuss their experiences and it shows their sessions happening yeah. at Imperial College London. So that one's neat. There's lots of stuff out there yeah. to like see it happening in the real and, and learn and educate and yeah. you know hopefully be a part of the change you want to see in the world. So we've done three episodes now. This is the most involved topic we've covered, but again, very close to our hearts. So in tying all of this together, I think that it's important to remember that it's not that drugs are the answer, right? No. It's not that you can just take a drug and it'll fix all of your mental health problems. Mm -hmm. But I think they can be the catalyst to the beginning. You know, often people are so stuck in their in their ways that they just can't even begin to make the positive change this, that need to happen. And psychedelics can often be that jumping off point where you learn a new way of possibility and you're motivated to make the change. But the changes are what's important, right? It's mm -hmm. all about having the conversations, dealing with your trauma, dealing with your issues, you know, mentally taking care of what's going on in your brain mm -hmm. and then physically as well, yeah. which brings us back to like the second episode, right? Yeah, where we kind of started putting the systems that all need to be in place for good mental health. So you need the mitochondrial bioenergetics working properly. And that's where Chris Palmer at Harvard and the brain energy theory comes into play. You need the right energy substrate so that the cells can work properly. And then you need the right diet in place for your gut health and for the building blocks, the micro and macronutrients. You need to make all these neurotransmitters and you need to be able to make serotonin and you need happy gut bacteria making the proper metabolites that communicate with the brain. And then you need the signaling of those neurotransmitters to work properly. And that's where the psychedelics can fit in as they can change the, the signaling between the cells and allow them to make better connections or new connections. And, you know, then you need maybe some neuroplasticity, like exercise. That's where it fits in. Exercise elevates something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, that mm -hmm. increases neuroplasticity. And, yeah. you know, all of these things fit together in a system. So depending where exactly in the system the problem is, that's why... The psychedelics can be very effective for some people, but not everybody. Yeah. But maybe your problem wasn't your thought loops and traumas that you needed to work through. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, the ketogenic diet is super effective, but not for everybody. Maybe the problem wasn't in your mitochondria. Maybe it was somewhere else. And mm -hmm. then, you know, a better diet can be very effective for some people, but not for everybody. Maybe the problem was you needed to process your traumas. Like diet yeah. wasn't part of it, you know. But I think if you, we have all of these tools available and I... I would issue a challenge to say if there was a person out there that had appropriately worked through their trauma, whether it's through therapy alone or psychedelic assisted therapy, had, you know, worked through their demons, eats a proper human diet full of the nutrients you need, exercises, goes out in the sun, sleeps properly, has good social connections. I feel like if all of those pieces were in place, I would like to meet the person that still has major depression. Yeah. I I don't think it exists. Yeah. But, you know that has done all of the tools, yeah. you know, no single one of them has a hundred percent efficacy. None mm -hmm. of them do, Yeah. but they're all, all together. That's the beautiful puzzle, all yeah. the pieces that can fit together. Yeah. It's, it's incredible stuff. I'll, I'll leave it at saying that where you love nutrition and the whole bioscience type stuff and love to talk about that. I find all things, drugs and psychedelics, super fascinating as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's just such an amazing thing that such a teeny tiny amount of a chemical can completely change the way your brain is functioning or the way you're seeing things or feeling things or whatever. I just, I just find this stuff interesting. So if anybody ever wants to discuss or ask more questions, I love talking about it. Yeah. I love to nerd out on all the science stuff about it. 
Just like I'll talk your head off about <laughs> nutrition for 87 years, David will talk your head off about neuromodulators for 87 years. Yeah, so it's it's just one of those interesting topics that like you, you can never finish learning, right? There's always more to learn about it, and it's super exciting that it's, it's like hopefully going to be part of the future of where we take mental health, and mental health is a very important topic to us. And, you know, these were some very difficult episodes to do, but we just want to get this information out there and do what we can. Yeah, so... Thanks for being part of the journey. Thanks for listening. (laughs) See you in the next one.